Okay, everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, this week, one of Peter's picks, we are going to be doing uh, John McTiernan's 1988 seminal, uh, I guess, American action movie, action thriller. I guess you could kind of go a couple ways on this. None other than Die Hard, essentially launching the super career of Bruce Willis around the world. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. It could be known as D-Hard if you're German. <laughs> or D-Hard. 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 <laughs> I wonder what they called it in Germany. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay. Yeah, let me look. My hair. <laughs> D-Hard in German appears to be called Strib Langsam. Hey, let's see what Google Translate says about that. So slowly. What's the how do you spell the first one? S T R I B. Uh, let's see. Strip langsam into English becomes die hard. <laughs> oh really? my god! We just wasted thirty seconds going in a circle. <laughs> you know, I think that you know a lot of people didn't really know who. Bruce Willis was before this. You know, he was known from like moonlighting on TV, but you know, he wasn't a big star before this. That's, you know, I forgot about moonlighting. You know, I I did not watch moonlighting. My wife loved moonlighting. Like she still talks about it all the time, but like I never watched moonlighting, which was like mid to late eighties. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I watched it, but I kind of remember it being around. I mean, it was on for a while. It was. Him oh, yeah. And... No, it was on for a couple of years and it was a huge hit. Right. But he, you know, like he had before this, he had done Blind Date, uh, which is not a good movie. It's by Blake Edwards. <laughs> um, 80, Moonlighting was 85 to 89. Right. He had done Blind Date and then he had. Um, uh, then he pretty much had Tom this. Tom Mix. He played in Sunset. And he, yeah, this was really it. And this movie was a huge hit. And the reason I picked it was, um, and by the way, neither one of us had seen this for many years, right? But um, and, and we, we both rewatched it this time after probably I don't know, I, at least 15. I didn't, yeah, I didn't see this years. in the theater. I saw this on cable in, in, in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long... I think the last time I watched this, it, it, it was probably on some form of video disc. You know, it was pro- probably was after videotape, but right, <laughs> it was probably yeah, on a DVD. I, for me, it may have been videotaped the last time I saw this. <laughs> um, and it's honestly, it's kind of like... A, it's really more of a VHS movie than a DVD movie. <laughs> yeah, I would suggest that in, in the way that people are into vintage vinyl now, and so they go like at Dark Side of the Moon on vinyl, you know, and listen to it. Uh, you should probably watch this movie on VHS for the same reason <laughs> to get the full retro eighties experience because it probably doesn't look any better digitally. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's I mean, VHS. We'll we'll get into some of this, but I mean, it's it's this movie is very very much lodged in the eighties, like like you kind of can't separate it. Whereas some movies have a more timeless quality. This mm-hmm. movie does not have a timeless quality. Like this movie is very, very much a product of its era. Yeah. And not that there aren't movies that are a product of their era and can be good. Um, but th- it's, it's a product of its area, mostly in a bad way. 
I mean, the stuff that's good about, I mean, so this, this is why I picked it. I mean, I think the, it, it was not that it was incredibly original in, in concept as sort of a cop action movie or even sort of a action movie in a bottle, um, which is basically what it is just taking place in, in one building and mostly just on internal sets. Um, but the, all the little elements that put it together entirely, it sort of defined what this genre was, this type of action movie was. And I think a lot of stuff after it followed in its footsteps. And even, you know, like I mentioned to you before, video games were influenced by this. So sort of a lot of first person shooter video games, you can tell that either on plot element or the way they design the uh, atmosphere of the sets or the appearance mm. of the video game. A right. lot of it's, you know, in empty buildings with shelled space, that kind of right. thing. Right and, angle corners and long corridors to run down, right? Duke right. Nukem, essentially. Right. And, and not just that, just, you know, unfinished spaces and crawling around um, in air conditioning ducts and elevator shafts and a lot of the sort of the, the feel of the atmosphere in the movie and the sort of the type of action and tension and the single guy who's against, he's out, he's, um, outgunned, outnumbered, barefoot, wearing a, a, a wife beater t-shirt. Right. Covered in grime. Starts with nothing. <laughs> right. So that, that's the premise of a lot. I think it, it right. made and, its and way into the And by the way, male. that's the premise of, here are other movies from 1988 that arguably have the same premise, right? They Live, Rambo yeah. 3, Clint Eastwood in the Deadpool, right? <laughs> I mean, they're all sort of variations on this theme. Yeah, but Rambo is was its own thing. You know what I mean? Like this, no, this movie absolutely. Is- but again, you know, like these are the movies that were playing at the multiplex when Die Hard was playing too. Like right. you had your you had your pick of this in 1988. Right. There was a lot of red meat action, shoot 'em up action movies. But the villain, first of all, also, the Also, by the way, also Red Heat with Schwarzenegger <laughs> is the same year. Speaking of red meat. Right. Yeah. Well, every, every Arnold movie, Commando, was a couple of years before this. Um, you know, every Arnold movie is sort of like one guy against the mob. But they don't get, they don't get a, a sort of a dramatic showdown between two good actors and a villain who's really smart and whose motivations are 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 not totally obvious in the first two seconds of the movie Mm -hmm. um and um though that's the core of the movie really there's sort of like there's bruce willis there's um the character hans gruber played by alan rickman because this movie also made alan rickman's career at least in hollywood Right, he was a stage actor before. Right, and you know, I'm sure he was. They in actually a ton found of him for this role because um, the, the McTiernan and, and I forget who else they were at a production of Dangerous Liaisons, and he was playing the villain. Is it Valmont? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, he was playing the villain, and they basically were like, "This is the guy who's our Hans Gruber." Like that's hmm. how he got the job. Is they just happened to see him at a play. It was probably one of the you know producers. Joel Silver or whatever, but yeah, yeah that might have been it. But he his career was made, and he was he's really really good in this movie as the villain. I mean, there's not a scene that he's in where he seems like where he's equivalent to the villains from those other movies that you mentioned that were the movies of this genre at this time. 
He's much different. He's much well, more menacing. And he's, he's more, m- yeah, and he's more layered in the way he does it. Like the way, way well, more. we'll get to it, but like the bit where he fakes an American accent. Right. Not a lot of Star Trek connections for this one. I guess there's a <laughs> Galaxy Quest connection. I just have to get the obligatory <laughs> Star Trek. So there's a Galaxy Quest connection with Alan Rickman, which I guess is kind of technically sort of a Star kinda. Trek connection. Yeah. Um, it, well, it kind of is. I mean, that's one yeah, of the best no, Star it, Trek it movies. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because because Galaxy Quest is like it's basically considered like a canonical Star Trek movie. Like it's not, but it is. It's great. Um, By Greb Thar's hammer. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, do you want to do the summary? Yeah, I mean, basically the the plot doesn't matter very much in this movie, but. Um, John McClane, Bruce Willis, is separate from his wife, who's been climbing the corporate ladder. He's a New York City um, detective, and his wife is a climbing, you know, executive in the Nakatomi Corporation. How's that for 1988, the 80s? Um, big Japanese scary company. Um, and she moves to L.A., and their marriage is sort of estranged, and he's coming out to visit on Christmas, and the building gets taken over by Hans Gruber and his um, Euro quote terrorists who turn out to be robbers <clears throat> who are actually after a large stash of bearer bonds um, in the in the basement, and um, they take basically take the building hostage, take uh, kill a bunch of people, and he it runs around the building to survive and foil them. And uh, there's a added as uh, a one man army. Yeah, he's he's like the uh, he's kind of. Arnie, but more vulnerable um, and a little funnier, s- and smarmier, smarmier and more uh, a little more interesting, uh, you know, more complex. And uh, he, you know, he's really good in this. I mean, he deserved his acclaim for this movie. Um, Bonnie Bedelia plays his wife, and then who plays the uh, plays the cop in the uh, the uh, Al Pal? It's Reginald. Vel Johnson plays mm-hmm. Sergeant Al Powell, who is the other sort of major character in the movie because he's a cop that's sent to check out the building um, when um, Bruce Willis makes a couple uh, radio calls to try to get help. And he um, initially doesn't see anything because the terrorists or robbers, whatever, are very sharp and they kind of have everything buttoned down. But then uh, Bruce Willis throws a cadaver out of the window onto his squad car and shoots at him. <clears throat> and from then on, they kind of talk on the radio, but everybody can hear them. The terrorists can hear them also. So their conversations are sort of slightly veiled. How did Bruce Willis manage to throw that body like 50 feet from the building? They, they <laughs> like do the show, car is far away. You know, I just and watched he hits it. the car. They do show a point of view shot from Bruce Willis where the car is kind of like right below his window, just to the left. So it actually... Um, there, there is one shot that kind of explains it because he's he's pulled his car right up to the front of the front door. You don't realize that unless you see that point of view shot, but it's not right. totally inconceivable. It's mostly inconceivable, but well, well the not. whole movie is. <laughs> there's a little like yeah, I get there's a little towering inferno aspect, I guess, a little bit too, in that the action is confined to the building. You know, this is this is the action movie version of what they call a bottle show. You know, where everything right. is everything takes place in one essentially confined set or group yeah. of sets that are all interconnected. 
Yeah, the whole movie is in the building and mostly within back sort of industrial unfinished parts of the building that he crawls around in to avoid them. And, you know, he's in the air conditioning duct, he's in the elevator shaft. And the, the so that setting is is a major player in the movie's atmosphere. And a, a lot of the gunfights and the wrestling that happen very regularly as he moves around the building fighting the the um the robbers it, it take place in that setting. And he's barefoot wearing a wife beater the whole time. Right. And, you know, he's they they go 10 miles out of their way to sort of make him an average Joe. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the big theme. I mean, he's supposed to be a cop, so he has knowledge and skills, but he's not a Superman. You know, so McTiernan um, had done Predator the year before, and he he said that he didn't want to do another movie where, you know, the star was essentially like a, a superhero. So they purposely built in all this stuff about how, like, McLean's wife doesn't like him. You know, he's he got sits problems. In the front. He sits in the front with the limo driver. Limo driver, way, right, to show that he's a worst, regular guy. World's worst limo driver. Yeah, and worst actor. Yeah. Um, uh, but they, and you know, that's why they just, they did all this stuff to sort of make him vulnerable. And McTiernan and Willis worked out that the McLean character didn't actually like himself, that he was sort of like, felt bad about himself for where he was at this point in his life. And that's sort of like all sort of worked in underneath the character. Like to basically they wanted to make him as different from Schwarzenegger as possible. Right. And it, it comes through. Um, he has a cynicism and it, that really does come through. You know, he, he's the start of the movie. It does. I mean, it's, it's not, um, it's not. It doesn't have a light touch in laying out the background, but it gives you the details. And what's better than them laying out the background that he's estranged from his wife and they're in separate coasts is just Bruce Willis's performance, um, where he really he does he is vulnerable, um, you know, and not just he's not just vulnerable because he's hanging eighty stories up in an elevator shaft right, without shoes on. Right, he's emotionally vulnerable. He he conveys that while he's running around killing people with his bare hands, <laughs> which is pretty nice. I mean, that's a good job. I mean that that's why the core of that movie to me is 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 Willis versus uh, Alan Rickman, Hans Gruber, and then also the cop um, Sergeant Al out uh, as a sort of secondary portion of that core of the movie, but is also involved and because he's sort of his. He's the good angel on his shoulder. You know, mm. he's sort of like, he talks to, he provides sort of um, a, an optimistic counterpoint to Bruce Willis's um, self-loathing and pessimism that's sort of mm. evident, evident as he runs around. So that, that's, the, that's the part of the movie that's interesting to me. The bad part, as you said, is it really is dated. It's super dated. Much more than I remembered because, it, like I said, it's been a long time. And, you know, it's funny. Like, it's, it's hard. To, I don't want to be negative. I don't want, I don't want people to feel like we're, we're poo-pooing on the movie. But, like I, like, I was almost cringing at some of the scenes, like the way it was shot and the way it was filmed. <laughs> like, even the film stock looks cheap you know what i mean and i i felt i feel bad the saying makeup. this because because yeah. the cinematographer is somebody i like it's jan de bond yeah. um who's made a ton of movies mostly a cinematographer but you know like if you watch you know even sort of popcorn fair like speed right or twister that he made 
Like, those movies right. look much, much better than this, and they're not that much later on. I mean, he had more experience under his belt, but, like, he was a cinematographer on Hunt for Red October or Black Rain. I mean, Black Rain is a terrible movie, but the only thing about it that you can say is it looks great. Yeah. And that's all Jan DeBond. Um, right. But this movie, like, there is just, there's something, like, like, I always, I always talk about this. Like, if you're aware of the camera... That's bad. Like if you're aware of the camera motion or like the way that the, the 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 scene is laid out, or you can sort of mentally in your mind imagine the camera setup that they're working off of. Like that's yeah. bad because then you've lost the sort of the illusion, you know, the suspension of disbelief. And I was I was just super aware of the camera. There's all these dolly shots, and I could just sort of envision the camera trundling on this little dolly track down the uh, down the set. Yes. I don't know. I, I'm being a little picky, but I, I, I'm telling you, like, when you suggested this, I, you know, I wouldn't have thought of it, but I was like, all right, that's a good movie to do. And uh, as I was watching it, like, it was hard for me to get through it this time. And I'd seen it a bunch of times. Yeah. I No, you're right. I mean, the, the, cinema, the, the camera angles, movements, the editing, the lighting, the makeup, the color tone, the... Uh, set design, the cinema, the 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 score, of course. Um, everything about it, even the the foley um, sound right. throughout it, the the squibs when they're shot look dated. Um, you know, the little blood. It just spurt. looks. It looks super Hollywood stagey, like like. You you know you get the feeling it like Willis is kind of the only one who pulls off feeling like he's in danger, whereas the others just feel like they're actors in a set. Like there's a scene where the guy is running on top of the table, yeah, uh, and Willis is underneath the table, and you know he says like something like "Don't hesitate the next time you get a chance to kill somebody." You know, yeah, like he's like, "Okay, thanks so for like, the advice, pal." <laughs> right, but it's just it's just. You know, in real life, no one would ever do that. No one would ever say that. And it's sort of like it brings out sort of like the worst of eighties. Yeah, you know, one-liners in action movies, like the way that sort of like the way on The Simpsons. Uh, who's the Who's the Arnold character in The Simpsons? Is it McBain? You know, the way McBain <laughs> is always sort of delivering these McBain. ridiculous one-liners. Right, yeah, that's I mean, Arnold. Yeah, it, it is Arnold. But I yeah. mean, it's emblematic of this whole era of filmmaking in terms right. of action cinema. And the the Arnold movies are really the most obvious example of that like the scene with the guy walking on the table that is right out of an arnold movie where arnold shoots him through the the table from underneath the final laugh and makes a funny you know makes a comment you know (laughs) how do you like that you know at the end something something now you're full of holes (laughs) (laughs) right i don't know um i mean look you know, it, the movie is 30 years old, um, yeah. and I don't want to, you know, look, for its time, it was, you know, it really caught the zeitgeist, and it got a ton of attention, and it made a ton of money, and it spawned a franchise. Yeah, um, and, it, and, and, it, and it had, and it, that, the acting in, you know, those few people were terrific. I mean, it was something new. In right, I mean, sense. this thing gave birth to five movies and potentially a sixth is is in the works, they're saying. Right, I think that this one takes place in the nursing home. He's trying to, 
He's like in a wheelchair, you know, like, like you know, he's got like one hand like on the wheelchair control, and the other hand he's got like on like a Glock nineteen, you know. Yeah, he's got it taped onto the like the back of the wheelchair, <laughs> right? With just the, two bullets left the in it. Climactic scene. <laughs> he does a wheelie, like he does a wheelie at the end. You know, it is interesting guy. to see how much Bruce Willis's appearance has changed. Yeah, well, he's you know, 30 years older. Right, he's 30 years older, and he's got a lot of hair, and he's got shoe polish in his hair, and this, you can, his hair is very clearly dyed, or, or he's got something in there to make his hair look thicker or darker. Yeah. Um, and they really, really sort of play up sort of the angles of his face, and his hair is always sticking straight up. And you look at him now, you know, like, you know, Bruce Willis kind of reached his final physical appearance in, in Pulp Fiction, which is not that much after this. You know, Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. is 1993, I think. Mm-hmm. But Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction looks like Bruce Willis today. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like a lot of men, you know, like once you get to a certain age, you just reach your final form and you don't, you know, you have the same haircut till you die after a certain point, you know? Yeah. Um, and like Bruce Willis had not yet reached his final form. Like Clint Eastwood looks the same now as he did 30 years ago, basically. Like he reached his final form sometime in the late 1980s. He's just sort of like a thinner, you know, more like, more like sort of rawhide-ish version of, uh, of old Clint Eastwood. I know, but, you know, and the, I mean, Bruce Willis is 63 now. Clint Eastwood, 30 years ago, was like 65. Yeah. So he's, he's, Clint is 88. <laughs> he was actually like 107 back then. Yeah. Uh, have you seen the trailer, by the way, for his new movie, Mule? No. It, it's his, uh, It's going to be his. I don't know if it's 2018 or 2019, but the trailer's out, and man, Clint looks really old. Like, he looked old in Gran Torino, and that's a yeah. decade ago. Well, he was old. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. He was 78 then. <laughs> anyway, but back to Die Hard. Um, but, you know, I agree with you. And I was, I mean, I've been thinking about what you said about video games. And I made the comment earlier. Like, this, I mean, this movie reminds me a lot of Duke Nukem. I played a lot of Duke Nukem. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie is very similar to that. Yeah, I mean, this movie looks like every video game that came out, in the, mostly in the 90s, because. Then the, you know, like the engines, the graphic engines came out and the graphic cards were capable of doing that level of 3D graphics. Um, So, I mean, but it was not long after this came out. So just the feel of it, man, is it, is it common? I mean, I think it had, it had a big impact. I'm just, I'm a little surprised, I guess, at the looks of it. I thought it was... You know, I agree. I thought it. I didn't realize it went so so dated. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about '80s action cinema, and like, I think more so certainly than now. Like '80s action cinema is so unapology, so unapologetically like hyper testosterone infused. Like what came out in the '80s? You know, Die Hard, Predator, The Terminator, RoboCop, Commando, First Blood, Aliens, Lethal Weapon. Yep. Right. Yeah, I mean, Escape from New York, um, The Running Man, Conan, you know, I mean, it's just, it's endless. It's just like every two or three months, one of these movies was coming out. Right. And it was either set, it was, it had a, you know, a police, it was either a police story or a sci-fi story or Or a police sci-fi story. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But right. There was every variation, but it was basically they were similar in tone 
Right. Don't forget, by the way, Action Jackson came out the same year as this. (laughs) (laughs) If Carl Weathers, good lordy. Um, What was I going to say? I don't know. I mean, do you like the other movies in the series? Mm, I don't think I saw past the second or third one. I definitely saw the second one. I don't remember what the third one was. There's like Die Hard, The Vengeance. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Right? Die Hard after psychoanalysis. <laughs> die Hard at the grocery store. Like they just do them over and over and over. Yeah. No, I, I didn't see all of them. I mean, they they were they weren't even close. I mean, they try they're trying to replicate something that you really can't replicate. It's it's gonna suck. I mean, people are gonna go see it right because they they're trying to recapture the they're chasing the dragon. You know, they're trying to recapture the magic. Mm-hmm. Um, even this is back when people went to the movies, so as I say in like every podcast, instead of just, you know, watching them on their couch now on their 92 inch OLED. Um, but I, you know, even then people went and it sucked and most people <laughs> knew it. But I think one thing that does make the movie stand out is the fact that they do, you know, they don't make... McLean or Willis's McLean to be perfect. You know what I'm saying? Like he makes errors, the bit where he has to run through the glass. Yeah. Um, you know, he gets tired. I, I read he that Stallone, Schwarzenegger and Clint Eastwood all looked at this role and passed on it. Um, or for whatever reason. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that they would have been able to play this with the same sort of vulnerability uh, that Willis did here, right? And and just sort of the way that the whole movie is sort of superimposed on his failing marriage. Yeah, no, right? it, it, he it's it makes the movie. It does make the movie, and I think it's what makes it more importantly stand out, right? And for example, yeah. like nobody talks about Rambo three. Nobody even really talks about Rambo anymore. But like this no. movie, like if you read, like if you go on some bulletin boards and stuff, and you sort of read the the way that people talk about this movie, like there's still a lot of affection for this film thirty yeah. years on because they like the characters and they like the characters because the acting was good, right? And you know Willis had had experience sort of being the sort of like smarmy wiseacre on moonlighting, right? So there's a little bit of his moonlighting character on this. Like I said, I didn't watch moonlighting when it was on, but my wife likes it. So I've watched a bunch of it with her. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can sort of see some of the roots of his character or his characterization of McLean in the way he does moonlighting. Yeah. I think he said yippee ki a lot in that. (laughs) He got uh, $5 million for this film, which was basically like, unprecedented at that time for an actor with a limited reputation and limited, you know, filmography, but they really, really wanted him for this. And they agreed (laughs) to his ridiculous asking price, which apparently none other than Rupert Murdoch had a personally approved because it was so much more than they were anticipating spending. Well, the the budget's 28 million, the whole budget. So right, that's, that's what I'm chunk. saying. Right, he he walked away with everything practically. You know, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure everybody else got a little tiny sliver of that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, who knows what Alan Rickman got? He certainly didn't get five million. He probably got a few hundred thousand. I bet. You know, you think like just you. I forgot you mentioned you. Uh, it, was, it was a good point. You know, you mentioned like Lethal Weapon also was a franchise, right? So Lethal Weapon with uh, Mel Gibson. Right, and Danny um, Glover. 
Right. Uh, also a franchise, also massively popular at the time. Um, and I mean, Mel Gibson was already pretty famous, but this still brought him into another category. It was you mean Lethal s- Weapon? Lethal Weapon, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. And I, I think it kind of, and it was a real crossover hit. Like, right. men and women went to the Lethal Weapon series, and men went, you know, for one reason, and women went for another. But he was a big, you know, action hero and heartthrob at the time. Right. However, you know, he's supposed to be troubled in that movie and sort of suicidal. Yeah. I was going to say, I I distinctly remember like that. My, when you said lethal weapon, like the first thing I thought of is that scene where he puts the gun in his mouth. Yeah. And it just doesn't ring true. I mean, he, it doesn't work the way this movie, I mean, obviously Bruce Willis isn't suicidal, but Bruce Willis has some angst in this movie and it rings way truer than it does in lethal weapon. Um, you know, that, that's sort of the reason why I think this movie's the best of the bunch. Yeah. Well, and as a general rule, the first one was always the best of the bunch, you know, no, no, you, I mean, all, out of its peers, you, you know, Oh mean, yeah. Not I, the, well, yeah. I, I mean, I would say that, I don't know if I could say it's the best of its bunch from that era, but it's, it certainly holds up. You know, I would say of the sort of cop-themed ones, it's the best. I don't know if I'd call it the best sort of macho 80s action no. movie. But well, it's you can't include, like, uh, I don't mean, you know, yeah, not like the sci-fi ones, whatever. But out of the this specific genre, um, it's better than the Arnold movies and the, um, you know, the Lethal Weapon series and all of those guys. I mean, it's a, it's a better picture and it's more memorable. And I think it had more impact, more lasting impact. I think so. I think so. I mean, again, like we've, you know, we've talked about how it does look dated and, and for example, like Bonnie Bedelia's hair, right? <laughs> I mean, that's straight out of our high school yearbook, that hair she had there. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean that in a good way. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, like stuff like that, like just constantly like reminds you again and again and again, and again you're watching an 80s movie. Mm-hmm. That, and for me, you know, that took me out of it watching it now. Like the way that they're dressed, like her shoulder pads and, you know, the, the 80s sort of like power suits that everybody's wearing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one thing that's that I think is interesting and I think maybe plays into the sort of 80s greed aspect is that they're basically thieves masquerading as terrorists, the bad guys, which is an right. interesting piece of it, right? It's easy to just make them evil, mustache-twirling uh, terrorists, but the fact that the, the, the operation is really just a cover for them to steal the bearer bonds actually makes them more believable, as opposed to right. just sort of cardboard terrorists that you can just shoot and whatever. Right, especially Hans Gruber, because he really... The other, ter- the other characters are either typical you know bad guys or stuntmen or like the the technology you know the guy with the, operating the drill is just is incredibly irritating um mm-hmm. so the rest of the rest of the crew could come they're interchangeable in any movie but but especially but you're right i mean it really serves um alan rickman well and he does a really good job of it he's terrific in it um I wonder what was his, what was what was Alan Rickman's next movie after this? Let me just look really quick. I'm curious Probably you know, took where him a couple. he went after this. Yeah. Yeah, he well, he's in he plays, you know, this is 88 and then he's got some stuff in 89 and in 1990 he's in Quigley Down Under. 
But by 91, he's the villain in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, right? So <laughs> awful movie, but a big, big Costner vehicle. Right. So, and he's, and he's sort of, still picked carefully, you know, like you can see, you know, when you're looking at his movie, his list, I mean, he did Sense and Sensibility, which was very good. Right. Angry. Although he ends up, although he ends up making $8 trillion from his work in the Harry Potter movies. Right. Where um, he plays Snape. But that took, you know, that was what, 2001. That's, yeah, no, that's right. But the upshot is like. You know, by then he's sort of like emeritus actor, actor, and he gets yeah. you know he gets to be the big baddie essentially. But yeah, no, I mean he works steadily. He puts out anywhere from one to five movies a year. It looks like all through the nineties, um, and then by the two thousands, he's doing two to three movies a year, doing big stuff. And um, you know, he obviously, I think he passed away in twenty sixteen. I know he was he was only uh, sixty nine. Yeah. Uh, he had pancreatic cancer, by the way. Mm. Um, they say he had a he had a stroke, which led to his diagnosis. So he probably really had Trousseau's syndrome, right? That's probably mm. right what he ended up with as a manifestation of his pancreatic cancer. But we're, we're digressing. Um, I don't know. I mean, did you – so to go back to a question I asked you earlier, did you watch the other movies in the Die Hard series? Not not for years. I think I saw the second one in the theater, and I might have seen the third one, maybe on on video or something. I've seen. I think I may have seen all of them, but you know, sitting here now, it's hard for me to remember what happens in which one. Yeah, can you remember any of them? No. Well, it's funny because as I was watching this, I was waiting for one or two other scenes that never happened. And I think they're just in some of the other Die Hard movies. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're all sort of like, like I took the deck of cards and threw it up in the air and they sort of landed all over the floor. Like, like that's how my memory of these movies is. They're all sort of spaced out. Um, But I don't know. I mean, look, you got to hand it to him. Um, Willis, I mean, he took, you know, he took his opportunity. Like he got offered a big, big property and, you know, he threw everything he had into it and he literally springboarded his entire career based off of this thing. Yeah, but he he really deserved it. Yeah, no, he did. He did. And, um, you know, what's funny is that you can see, I'm just thinking about McTiernan now, you know, if you think about, McTiernan, you know, like I said, he said he didn't want to do any more Arnie-type movies. And for the most part, he didn't. Like, after this, he does Red October. I'm just talking about what he directs. He does Red October. Right. Which is, you know, that has um, uh, Alec Baldwin as the Jack Ryan character, who's definitely not cast in the Schwarzenegger mold. He does Last Action Hero with Arnie, which is really a send-up. Of right. the movies that Arnie made throughout the 80s. He makes another Die Hard movie. He does The 13th Warrior, which practically nobody saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a really interesting movie based off of uh, Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton. Um, you know, so you could see, like, he meant it when he said he wanted to try to, you know, get away from Predator, which he made. By the way, Predator made $100 million off of a $15 million budget. Um, so he certainly made his money off of Predator, but you could see he just wanted to sort of shy away from that. Is yeah. McTiernan still alive? Yeah. Yeah, he's still alive. He's from Albany. Good Lord. Um, I don't know. 
other thoughts on this? No, I think it's I think I think it's worth seeing at least in pieces. Yeah. At least watch clips. Rob was going to say if you're if it's you're pressed for clips. time, go to go to YouTube and you know type something like Die Hard scenes or Die Hard best scenes or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know the thing. I will tell you though. One thing that I really do like, and and this goes for decades now, is I like Bruce Willis. Like, like he's there's there's a kind of a daring nature to the way that Bruce picks his roles, and you can tell like as he's gotten older he's more willing to sort of like play with the way that people expect him to act or be in a movie. And sometimes he'll sort of go against that type. You know what I'm saying? Like he does plenty of action movies, right? Mm -hmm. Where he sort of plays a super tough guy, but you know, like if you like, I'm thinking about unbreakable, uh, right. Which is an interesting character for him to play or like, um, uh, Lay the favorite where he plays the bookie in Vegas dink, you know, like he's, he's so established as this sort of super tough macho guy that he can play against type. You know, they say that if you're an actor, there's only two things to do. You can go type or you can go against type and that's it. Mm-hmm. But he's able to sort of pull it off in a winning way almost every time. Like when he shows up on screen, you know that, you know, you may not be seeing the greatest film right of the year, but you're going to have a good experience at the theater. Yeah, and and, and he's you, I, picked he's picked some good stuff. I mean, Pulp Fiction alone. Oh yeah, but I'm looking through his filmography while we're talking, and it's it's literally you can see he's doing you know he does the Expendables, he does Looper, he does then he does Lay the Favorite, he does Twelve Monkeys, right, right, or Sin City, right, um, yeah. you know. Just he's Death Wish, like he's just you know he's he's gonna play David Dunnigan in. Um, M. Night Shyamalan's sequel to Unbreakable Glass. Like, he just has an interesting sort of uh, filmography where he bounces back and forth between mainstream projects or more sort of quirky offbeat projects, and he pulls it off. I don't know. I I really like Bruce Willis. I like his shtick, as they say. Whew. Uh, Anything else? No, I think we covered it. I'll be curious to see Glass. I, you know, I am not an M. Night Shyamalan fan. Like, I feel like he's been just a huge disappointment. Like, I think that he had The Sixth Sense, which I really like. And mm-hmm. I also really like Unbreakable. And I kind of feel like after Unbreakable, there's not a lot there for me. Um, but I'm really looking forward to Glass because I think that that, in some ways, is a more interesting story than The Sixth Sense, which, by the way, also stars Bruce Willis. Hmm. <laughs> All righty. Should we break there? Yep. I'll see you. All right, everybody. Uh, Next week, Die Hard with a Vengeance. (laughs) (laughs) Die Hard in Chinatown. I don't know. Die Harder. (laughs) Die Harder. (laughs) All right. This is Hans Gruber signing off.